1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Timothy Cleveland, professor of philosophy at New Mexico State University. His new book, Beyond Words, Philosophy, Fiction, and the Unsayable, is just out from Roman and Littlefield. It seems undeniable that language has limits in what it can express. Among other philosophers, Wittgenstein famously drew a line of this sort in his Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. But what is the unsayable or inexpressible? what is interesting philosophically about the unsayable? And if something is unsayable, how can fictional works be related to if not say something about it? In his new book, Cleveland argues that philosophical interest is not limited to the in principle unsayable as many philosophers have claimed. There's great value in what may be unsayable at a given time due to epistemic limitations, for example. Moreover, words rendered in a certain way in fiction, such as in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, can acquaint us with, or exhibit to us, experiences that emerge from, but are not semantically encoded in, the sentences that the works contain. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Timothy Cleveland. Welcome to New Books in
1: Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. I'm um, happy to be here.
2: Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking about your book, "Beyond Words: Philosophy, Fiction, and the Unsayable." Um, before we get into the book itself, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself—you know, your your philosophical career—and then you know your philosophical interests and how that all culminated in this book.
1: Sure, um, I grew up as a, a kid in West Texas and a evangelical Christian family and culture. And um, by that time I was probably in my teens, I was starting to question that and be uncomfortable with it. And uh, so by the time I went to college, I took a couple of philosophy classes and that sort of became my new faith. And the idea was, you know, for the first time, it you know, philosophy was presented to me as a way of critically reflecting on your beliefs and putting them to the scrutiny of reason and trying to find reasons that would justify the, the best reasons you could use to justify and support, you know, a worldview. And I had a sort of great faith in that. Um, that sort of replaced my old faith and, um, this faith that reason could lend us knowledge and insight. But also, I went to school to be a writer and a poet. Um, and my first love was really literature, and it was that that took me to philosophy classes uh, originally. But, um, so I had these two loves, philosophy and literature, and I had to make a choice. And of course, I ended up choosing professionally to go into philosophy, but I've always felt like, um, I wanted these two things to be one in my life and to come together and i've always felt like they were of a piece in some sense and that ultimately i've thought about that my since i was an undergraduate at least and finally this book is uh me putting together um a lot a lot a lot of thinking into a sort of simple short book about wh- how i think they go together and uh it's a um, it's unusual, I think, in a sense, because my my training and my interest uh, is goes in two very different directions. And one is um, or they see seemingly two different directions. One is I, I studied philosophy of mind and philosophy of uh, language and logic and metaphysics. And I do work in sort of the intersection of those things where I'm concerned about how logic and language and questions about reality are connected. Um, And I teach fairly technical courses, but I also have this uh, love for uh, aesthetics and literature and especially, um, especially the written word literature. Um, uh, So I think this book puts all those things together. Uh, as best I can to try to articulate what I think, um, in my mind, uh, is, the, is the connection. And so that's pretty much uh, my story and how it came to be, this story, in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So there's some personal passion in this for me, I think.
2: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that definitely comes through. And, and I think you've done a, a very admirable job of of blending the two, you know, bringing them both together so that they're, they're in conversation with each other and and informing each other. Um, so let's, so the, the, um, you know, beyond words, I mean, it's about the unsayable and what fiction does to, in some sense, as you put it, you know, point to, you, you can't express the inexpressible obviously that's a contradiction, but, um, but there is a way in which somehow fiction does manage to, you know, indicate or point to, you know, um, to the the unsayable. So maybe we should start by saying what you mean by the unsayable or the inexpressible.
1: OK, so, I mean, I think if you look up the term sort of if you Google it or whatever, um, you're going to get sort of what is the Nowadays, the common use thrown around and the unsayable is used often as something that's morally horrible. That It's beyond being able to talk about because it's so horrific. And of course, I don't mean anything like that. I mean, something more like in, uh, inspired by Wittgenstein uh, from the Tractatus that. There's some limit to what language can do, inherent, he thought, at least in language. And it's this unausprechlich, you know, thing, uh, to use his word, um, that um, we try to, um, we can't, we can't talk about. It's impossible to talk about. Um, but, um, I just use the phrase beyond words because i I really got that phrase from Dante, who famously said when he was trying to uh, talk about his experience into paradise that passing beyond humanity may not be put forth in words and that it's beyond words and um, so um that's it. it in a simple way. Um, I think um, the thought about literature is different from other arts. I mean, I I think it's come at commonplace for people, uh, both, you know, intellectuals or uh, just anyone, to think that sometimes, let's say, a painting, a visual art, or a piece of music lends some experience to us, or maybe even some insight, uh, allows us Discernment into something that we can't really say. Uh, we can't capture the experience completely. We can talk about it a lot, but we can't capture it completely in words. I think that's pretty common uh, gut reaction that many people have to some pieces of, of visual art and music. But it's a it's different with words. I want to say the same thing with words. Something similar happens in some cases. Um, with artistic expressions in words. And that's a little more paradoxical because words convey meaning. And so it seems as if how can words, which you use to talk about things, show us something that can't be said? And again, I like to use the Wittgenstein expression. Uh, The words artistically rendered show us something that we can, that we can't fully articulate. So that's a, that's sort of what I mean by the unsayable. Yeah.
2: So I mean that raises kind of two questions, and let me I'll just one you you address somewhat later in the book, but um, it's the idea what you said before about you know it's just it's impossible to say. Could you could you say something about the the impossibility? Is it is it uh, is it a, a sort of a, a permanent condition of, you know, cannot ever, you know, under any circumstance be said under any extension of language or just that, you know, we can't, we're unable to say this with our linguistic resources, um, but in principle there could be linguistic resources to do it. So, what when you say impossible, which which of those which do you mean, or what do you mean?
1: Right. So, I I, I did say that, and um, and I've thought quite a bit about it, and I put quite a bit of thought into it in the book, I think. And what I want to say is most most I think that's the key question, and I think most philosophers who've thought about this historically and in contemporary times think that the impossible is a a very strong sense of the impossible. That um so a philosopher like Wittgenstein thought that there was something built into the very nature of language or structure of language that created a limit which language couldn't get past. And uh somebody like um um F. H. Bradley also thought that there was something inscrutable that thought and it it thought, of course, articulated, was unable to capture. Um, um, I, so that it was ultimately impossible. Many discussions today, and what the way I try to put this is in what sense is um the unsayable in principle unsayable? Philosophers, almost everyone you look up who talks about the ineffable or the unsayable says that the it's the in unsayable that's interesting, and it's the only unsayable that's uninteresting. So I try to put a little pressure on that question, um, and it's easy to distinguish a trivial census of the unsayable. From um, important senses of the, or super interesting senses of the unsayable, um, some some sense of the unsayable that might be, you know, raise interesting questions about our beliefs or the extent of what we can know, the extent of our knowledge. Um, so typically, people draw the distinction with paradigm cases, and I'm I'm comfortable with paradigm case, cases of Really trivial cases of the unsayable versus um, ones that seem to be contenders for the in principle. But one of the things I want to suggest is that uh, when we put pressure on the distinction between the in principle and the say not in principle um, unsayable, it's very hard to draw a fine line. And so I, here's a way to think about it. We can think about real trivial senses of the unsayable and uh, where people are, say, physically constrained. If they, if they have a gag or something, they can't say something. Well, I don't know that that's a very interesting sense of not being able to say something. Um, so, but that's the kind of radical paradigm extreme of unsayable that some people give uh, another, but the more interesting case is, Uh, That people want to say that if something's only due to our epistemic limitations, that's not interesting. So if it's just because knowledge isn't developed enough to be able to say certain things, say we can say things now and articulate things now that couldn't be said in the 17th century, that's not an interesting sense philosophically for, for most people. It has to be because that's not in principle. That's sort of a contingent factor of our, you know, the growth of not, you know, history. So um, I want to take that on and suggest that's not um, the way to talk about the unsayable in a sense to reveal what's interesting philosophically about it
2: so why I mean this is you know this is i thought you know for me anyway, it was one of the more interesting you know most interesting aspects of your discussion is is the fact that you were putting pressure on this this sort of what is what is and isn't interesting to to philosophers um is never at least to my knowledge very clearly defined. it seems to be like, well, if I don't find it interesting, then it's not interesting, which is not very illuminating. Um, so w- how exactly do you, you put pressure on that? I mean, you, you, you defend the idea that, that the not in principle uh, unsayable is, in fact, a really interesting thing.
1: It's certainly, at least in some cases, very interesting. And some of those cases have to do with literary works that so i i do conclude that and i want to say that here's how here's a way to think ab- about it so um let's take a case where um we have a language where plenty of languages we can just think of immediately have uh, limits of expressibility. okay um, and we could we can tell that they do. Right. So in, in the Wittgenstein's investigations, he gives early on that example of a primitive language, the blocks language. And it it contains only four or five, five or six terms. I can't remember. Slabs, it, isn't it? Slab, like, slab the, pillar, the Slab blocks. language. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So and, you know, you can say things you can offer. It seems to be a, a language of commands where you can say bring me a slab by saying slab or something. Well, clearly there's things unsayable in that language. Okay. So, and so, but they're not in principle unsayable, are they? We could add to the language. We could beef it up a little bit. Um, And so it seems to me just thinking about that and thinking about maybe the English language being uh, limited in its expressibility in certain, certain ways, um that we the, the issue becomes whether any possible language could always be expanded, could always so if at any given point in the development of a, of a language, could that language be expanded so that the what was unsayable. Become sayable. If it's possible to do that, then everything's going to be sayable in principle. Okay. And that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I, I try to show a way in which, um, it could be possible that every possible language could, could be in, expanded and so on, uh, forever so um i don't conclude that however i just suggest there are good reasons to believe it um i i also want to you know suggest that without some real what i call transcendental arguments in the style of kant that would show us that such things can't be done that language has some kind of inherent limit that we have reason to believe that that it could always be expanded so that everything becomes sayable in some sense if that's the case there is no unsayable and we can't really draw an interesting line in that way on the other hand we might think that um you, all of these, so that all of these limits are in some sense contingent in the development language or epistemic limits that we have. So if we think about a language not expanding, um, it, the main reason, say, from the 17th, difference between the 17th century and now, are changes in science and all kinds of um, knowledge and conceptual things added to um, the language. That, that enrich it. So obviously, those are epistemic changes, and those, you know, for most people who talk about the unsayable, they don't think about that being um, interesting philosophically. These, these sort of epistemic limits, and so um, I I want to argue that they are because either their languages infinitely expandable, or it's not. We don't know which, but in either case, um, uh, there's going to be something um, interesting about the unsayable, and in case some of those cases it'll be uh, epistemic. So at a given time, even if a language is in principle expressible, the language or all the languages in existence, May have or will have something that's inexpressible in those languages. That may be, you know, a hundred years later, expressible. Well, is is enough? That's enough to make it interesting. So, so either there's a transcendental argument for limits, or there's limits at a time. And if art takes place at that time maybe that's just when it can show us something that can't be said at that time. And if it does in a way that nothing else can do at that time, that's interesting because that has to do with the growth of knowledge and philosophers are fundamentally interested in such questions as that.
2: Okay, yeah, that's that's clear. Yeah. Do, do you think, so... Um i mean in the more in the stronger sense um you know it it seems like it depends on whether you, one thinks that knowledge is infinitely expandable
1: right it could be i don't i i and I don't see this i don't think um i i know i know people like Kant think that there's certain things that we cannot know um but there's another sense in which That even the knowledge constrained by the kind of limits Kant had in mind seems to be without limit. You know, there, what would, it, it might contingently have limits, but it won't, we won't know what they are at any given time. So like right now, suppose we've reached our limit now, epistemically, or we're on the verge of it. We don't know that now. And so the fact that we don't know it, Makes us continue to push that that boundary epistemically, and so there's a way in which um the epistemic issue is the interesting one for the unsayable, because we don't we're never going to be in a position unless we have a transcendental argument that'll tell us you know in some deductive proof where that line is we're never going to know where that line is. And so we're always going to be at a place where um, we we don't know whether we've reached that limit or not.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you you start the book. I mean, this kind of goes to what in um, what we what fiction um, or art, as you as you just mentioned. Um, can show us that isn't sayable. Um, so you start with uh, looking at, you know, Plato's famous discussion of, you know, banning the poets from the Republic. Uh, and, um, uh, and you argue that, um, well, if in fact the poets were banished, um, which you don't think can actually happen, uh, which is itself a, an interesting thing to talk about um but that e- if they were that we would we would lose something really important um so could you could you take us through that um that discussion of of Plato and the poets
1: sure sure um i i you know going back to the, the way I started with my beginning um about i always felt like there was a, a Philosophy and literature, at least some literature, were of a piece. Um, that was always something I learned early on. Was that tension, because Plato banished the poets, and after Plato, there's always there's always been this uh, kind of tension between the cre- creative written arts and philosophy. And so Plato banished them. And what would be lost if that happened? Um, I think it is an interesting question why it wouldn't happen. And of course we can think of all kinds of things that would be lost. I think there's intrinsic value in those great works and that would be lost. I think um, um, avenues of creativity would be suppressed and lost. But what I really think would be lost is something to philosophy. And it's in, important to me that it's the philosophical endeavor and the philosophical goals that I think Plato had in mind and bequeathed to us, um, all subsequent philosophy. And it was Plato's idea that, as I mentioned, that I learned early on, totally independent of Plato, but that philosophy Involves the critical examination and scrutiny of our beliefs, and the defense and justification of our beliefs with reason, and that the, that developed what he called the dialectic method, and the goal of that method was knowledge, and it was a new way he conceived to give us knowledge, um, and we the goal of that knowledge was knowledge of ourselves knowledge of the good life knowledge of the world around us and knowledge of society with the goal in to have the good life for each and the good life for all or the best life for all and and i feel like banishing creative fictional work from philosophy in some sense, will make those, uh, make us fall short of the, uh, fall short of those goals. So it's set up in such a way, Plato's endeavor and the goals he's given us as philosophers can't be met if we do banish literature, especially fictional literature from philosophy.
2: So what, what does fiction do? I mean, that, that is, I, um, I mean, explain. So, yeah, so you, you don't, so fiction provides something, it does, fiction does, we do philosophy in some sense when we do. Write fiction or read fiction. Um, or engage with fiction. Right. Right. And so, yeah. right. And so what, what is that? What is what is that that we get from fiction that is that is philosoph that is philosophy.
1: I think there's many things that we get and many philosophers are willing to admit we get from fiction that would fit into Plato's the paradigm I just mentioned. But what I wanna suggest it's when we see that some works they may be special, but you know I'm not talking about all fiction by any means, but some works show us something that cannot be said, and when it does that, it takes us it gives the it brings a certain kind of knowledge or awareness to us that cannot be gained by theoretical. Rational discourse, which is the goal of you know philosophy for plato and and so, if that's true if if there are insights in fiction that that are unsayable, a kind of knowledge that can sometimes be shown to us and not said, those are important pieces of knowledge that I believe could play a role in achieving the very goals Plato set for philosophy in a way that he has intrinsically limited in kicking the poets out. So he's, he's left that that kind of knowledge out of his picture, um, and I want to suggest we include it, and that it's very important to...
2: -huh So how, how is it that that we do that with fiction or, or some, some writers do that with
1: fiction? So uh, I want to say, just like a painting might bring us a certain kind of experience, a kind of direct acquaintance with something that we can't put into words, I think sometimes literature, words, Rendered in a certain way can do something very similar and give us access, give us access to an experience or um, that um, is direct and non propositional and can therefore cannot be articulated in words.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
1: Sure. So I, in the book, I try to give some examples. Um, I, I think the, let me I didn't really, I don't think I really completely answered your last question. So I'll do that to set up the example is the way, I, I, a lot of times the way a, a painting or a piece of music, especially, you know, music without words, um, can do such a thing or make people feel such a thing, is that it's because of the way, something to do with the structure of the painting or the the instructional composition of the musical piece. And I think the same thing um, occurs in literature, sometimes works because of the way their structure, their formal characteristics can bring about, and I, I sort I think I mean that fairly loosely, uh, what formal means fairly loosely, and not sure I can define it. But, um, I want to say that because of that structure, the way the words are put together as a whole, they create this uh, sort of picture that, uh, shows us something. That can't be said. Um, It's it's the way um, um, the the writer Clive Bell, in his book Art, tried to define all sort of necessary and sufficient conditions for all what made art and painting. And he called it significant form. And I, I don't believe that's a necessary and sufficient or either necessary or sufficient condition. For art, but I think that's really suggestive. And in these cases, I think there's something like, um, that going on in literature. So my examples are examples where formal characteristics, I think, come together to convey, um, something, you know, we, we can we can talk a lot about that and how they, they're put together and, but we can't say what they do. And in my example, um, in my, one of my big influences was T.S. Eliot and T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. Um, and I try to, um, indicate ways that, um, that his work creates a complex emotion that, it's captured in some sense. He's capturing for the first time. That when we read the poem, we, we can recognize and, and it's not really articulable. And it's a sort of modern feeling that maybe was coming about about the time Eliot wrote the poem and that he was a great artist. He was able to capture in the poem i'm not saying that's so all the poem does it does a lot of stuff but it does that and that because of its formal characteristics
2: hmm. so i mean so are the um the experiences i mean you you talk a lot about acquaintance you know direct acquaintance uh, with certain experiences and that some works i um, mean as you mentioned art or music paradigmatically you know, incite in us certain experiences and and we're, we're experiencing them. Um, and presumably there's some, some sense in which if we didn't listen to the music or, uh, or, or look at the artwork, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have that experience. Um, and so you're saying basically we, some writers can do with words the same sort of thing. Um, Is, are the experiences that you get from like the wasteland, for example, uh, are these different sorts of experiences specific to fiction than the experiences that might be that we might have in response to music or to painting or, or in other words, do the types of ex, do the types of experiences kind of map onto the types of arts or or do the or or not? Uh,
1: that's a good question. I, I I don't know that I've thought through that completely, but my 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 reaction is to say they don't differ. Um, the, these experiences might be conveyed in a number of ways, and sometimes to be great art, in a certain, you know in a certain way, can show us those experiences effectively. Um, And and so, in some sense, maybe one can do it better than the other, or just happen to do it better than the other in a case. But I don't. I wouldn't think that they differ in type across the the different kinds of art. But but I haven't thought that through, so I don't I don't know. know?
2: Mm. Yeah, because I'm I'm just wondering, uh, how idiosyncratic this knowledge is basically um yeah
1: yeah yeah i mean that's i think that's a really good question and like i said i I haven't thought it through but i wouldn't see why it should be i don't off the top of my head don't see why it should be idiosyncratic to literature or music it seems to me um in fact, you know, you might find some great composer at the time of The Wasteland doing something similar to Eliot in the sense of we we read Eliot's poem or hear it read. And then we hear a, a piece of music and say, wow, I get the same feeling or they're capturing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, um Okay. Yeah. No, don't that's fine. That wouldn't be the case. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, a lot of the cases that you give and, and you, you sort of focus on are are these experiences, particularly uh, emotional experiences. Although don't not, I took it not necessarily an emotional experience. Um, it's just some sort of experience that we have. Um, uh, and I was just, I was just, uh, it just, um, it, you know, it just sort of struck me that, you know, different people will experience different things, you know, when faced with the same, you know, sort of work of art. Um, and then of course there's the, the artists themselves, uh, you know, the writer, um, is it what what is the writer's relation to the unsayable are
1: yeah I, I i love the que- that, that i love that question i love those questions and i'm so glad you asked me those because i want to make those uh, my, that, that's something i have thought a lot about and i want to make this clear so uh, it is the case that you know when um people read the Wasteland, or anything, anything, or hear any piece of music, people can have any number of distinct and, you know, different reactions, just like um, we do for anything else that involve, um direct experience and our taste. So, um, somebody commented on one of my papers one time about the wasteland, and had never read the wasteland and so read it and said, Oh no know, you know and I didn't get that from it or whatever you know and uh-huh. so, yeah, yeah sure yeah. sure sure. I mean that's that's going to happen and and if you read the wasteland and it strikes you very differently that's fine what I but I am trying to same with a painting right you go into and take a bunch of people into a museum look at you know a certain painting certain like, or certain paintings, you know, people could come away with all different kinds of, of visceral experiences. And um, but I want to say that that there are ways to see the the work in a way that people can have this experience, and that people that people do, and that it's a really important. Experience into something unsayable, and it's Uh, shared. It can be shared, yes, absolutely. Now, the what we recognize in the painting or in the work need not be something we're actually experiencing, but we recognize it—that thing exhibited in the work. Maybe we've experienced it before. Maybe we've only vaguely experienced it, never really realized it, and say, I know that feeling. So it's not that the the, the goal of the painting is to not to make us feel necessarily, but that the painting exhibits that feeling or the work exhibits it. So it's on display to be had, even if different people have different, they don't have it when they see the painting. And there's something about being able to recognize that in the painting that's valuable and is actually knowledge in a certain sense, and this is by acquaintance. If we go back to the, the poet, Eliot himself, very influenced by Eliot, as I said, and one of the things famously Eliot says about writing poetry or about poem that the poet should never put his own or her own feelings into the work. It's not about showing your emotions. So Eliot may not have those emotions. He's not trying to show us his emotions on the page. In fact, he believes, he believes his own aesthetic is writers should never do that. But what Eliot has is a certain kind of awareness and he knows how to Render that. So it could, it could be somebody else's feeling, for example. And it's rendered in the work in such a way that the work exhibits it. So the writer definitely doesn't have to have those feelings. And even the viewer or the reader doesn't have to have the feelings. What the, what the writer can do is have the artistic ability to render it so that it's shown, it's exhibited. I'm taking the word exhibited from Stanley Cavell. But, but the reader or the viewer is in a place to be able to recognize that and doesn't have to have the feeling to recognize it and can acknowledge it when they see it. And in fact, may think, I recognize it as something I never really recognized before that I have felt. Um, and that's where the insight can come in. Um, So I'm not saying different, definitely not saying that different people won't always, different people will experience things differently. Um, It's just a matter of um, contingent fact and the writer need not feel those things. It's just that the work almost, I mean, by analogy to a painting shows it. um,
2: Yeah, but there has to be a, A difference there because then it seems like, I mean, if you have a painting that, you know, exhibits a particular experience, you know, or emotion, um, it's clearly not a linguistic way of exhibiting. And therefore, you can still say it is exhibiting the unsayable. But if you're using language to exhibit, then. What's the difference between exhibiting in language and not saying, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the the language works, um, you know, with particular sentences put together or pieces of language put together, and each sentence, just maybe just oversimplifying, but give you an idea that each sentence is meaningful so in the in the wasteland, um we could find you know we could say what we we know what the sentences mean most of the time. I mean, or articulate perfectly meaningful sentences, so it's not that the sentences aren't meaningful, but there's something about the whole that's greater than the sum of the parts, and that's that's sort of my idea uh, to put that's a simple way of putting it that the whole structure together. Uh, says, you know, shows us something that the individual words put together don't say, certainly don't literally say, and can't be captured in um theoretical discourse.
2: Okay. Okay. That uh, that makes sense. Um right. Um okay so uh so we were talking about Plato before and, you know, banning the, you know, the poets and, and we would lose something, a lot of different things, but, you know, basically this, this form, this way of exhibiting the unsayable, if not, if not saying it exactly. Um, and at the, at the very end you, you suggest how Plato might have allowed the poets to stay Um, could you, uh, could you explain that?
1: I'll, I'll, I'll try to give a, a way that Plato might have allowed the poets to stay. I mean, if it, if it would have been essential to furthering the goals he actually set for philosophy, that alone is a way that, you know, should have made him keep the poets, but how would he have recognized that, right? so in some sense, I say he wouldn't have he 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 couldn't have, but at the same time plato had the had the realization I think himself struggling with this because people have always wondered that there's a sort of paradox about Plato that he banished this kind of writing or writers from the Republic, and he's one of the greatest literary writers in history probably and uh, so there's this paradox in plato i think plato if you if you read some of the dialogues many of the dialogues he he's quick to leave dialectical method and appeal to myth often right so uh, an example is in the theedrus where he's talking about beauty and he also makes this, uh, defense of the, the, the dialectic and the philosophical life. He has this long myth about us sprouting wings and flying to see the forms, basically. And, you know, and our souls going back, you know, to see, experience the forms. I think he, he realized that the bounds of literal language were not enough. I, there's all kinds, I know Plato's, I'm, I'm not a Plato scholar, and I know Plato scholars have written massively about this, and there's all kinds of opinions. But it seems like he's, he's realizing he, the limits of his own, you know, the expressibility of the language. And, um, I, He's, he's struggling with that. So it seems he could have realized that those myths suggest something and point us to something that can't be grasped by the dialectical method and defended and articulated. Um, that, and if he did, he could have, um, welcomed the poets in. Um, but, um, I don't know that he could have done that, um, given his you know his his actual views about uh, the limits of poetry.
2: Right, right, right. No, this is an, a kind of an in principle discussion. Right, uh, right yeah, right, right. Um, so, are there is there you know some other sorts of knowledge uh, that is unsayable other than experience? Is is, that's is that a... a good
1: question. I mean the way I'm feel it thinking about it is that it's unsayable because it can't it's non propositional. It can't uh-huh. be captured or, or tr- translated into words without some loss without loss so it's um it it, that's why i focus on experience i haven't thought about i don't i I don't think um or recognize another kind of unsayable knowledge the analog to the kind of experience i'm thinking of is what people have traditionally thought of as Rel- religious or spiritual revelation or often what people call intuition there's a kind of direct intuition that we have um, and that that's the way I'm thinking about it if there are other kinds um, I would be interested to uh, hear about them or think about them for sure okay
2: yeah yeah Um, okay, well, um, I think I've sort of covered a lot of, you know, a lot of the book. Um, uh, was there any part of it that you wanted to add at this point to, to guide readers and to, um, into your main themes? No, I think
1: that I mean that really covers the essence of it for sure. And I'm, I'm it was a wonderful discussion. I'm happy to have talked about it. Yeah.
2: Um, what are What are you are you working on something similar now, or have you are you doing something else entirely? What's your What's on your research agenda for the moment? Okay. So <laughs> uh,
1: the, right, uh, immediately, I'm working uh, continue to work on things that come out of this. Um, um, uh-huh. In particular, I'm thinking right now about the distinction between um, fiction and nonfiction,
2: uh-huh. and
1: how to draw That's... that boundary. Um, yeah, very difficult. Um, yeah. Right, right. Or the you know the fictional and the nonfictional in creative in creative work. Um, but I, but I also have in the last few years have spent quite a bit of time thinking about modal metaphysics and um, especially the work of timothy williamson um modal logic as metaphysics and i have work that i've done on that and those kind of um i i do both of those sort of in tandem with each other i think about both and i talk about I teach both and i talk about both um and also i um what I'm aspiring to is to write fiction and poetry, continue to do that. And so um, I try to, I, uh, I've got my, my many interests and I try to keep them, I try to keep them going.
2: Uh-huh. Well, this, I mean, this work certainly brought together a lot of those, a, a lot of those interests. Um, you know, the the philosophy and the fiction, obviously, but also the the modal metaphysics as well. Um, so, um, I appreciate your, your talking with us today at at new books and, and I wish you luck with, with the projects, including the fiction that you're, that you're working on right now.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you. I'm honored that you chose to talk to me and it was very happy to talk to you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Timothy Cleveland, professor of philosophy at New Mexico State University. We've been talking about his new book, Beyond Words, Philosophy, Fiction, and the Unsayable, which is just out from Roman and Littlefield. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.